The Guardian. I'm John Plunkett, and on this week's Media Talk... It is a form of bogus journalism. If you can raise the credibility of the profession, you actually strengthen it, people trust it more, and actually it could come out of this uh, much stronger. To that level of paying the police, hiring private investigators, no, I don't think uh, this is something which is done in France. We're behind the scenes at a special Guardian debate, finding out how the press rebuilds its reputation after the continuing revelations of the phone hacking saga. Coming up, we've got an interview with a legendary Watergate journalist, Carl Bernstein, as well as conversations with Alan Rusbridger and David Cameron's former press secretary. No, not that one. First, though, here's a taster of the debate. Making up the panel was the aforementioned Messrs Bernstein and Rusbridger, along with Sylvie Kaufman, editorial director of Le Mans, and Conservative MP George Eustace. The chairman was Channel 4 news presenter Krishnan Guru Murthy. Carl Bernstein, um, welcome. Before I get to how can the press restore trust, I think what everybody here will want to hear from you is is, is what you think the parallels were or are between the hacking scandal and Watergate. Well, I'm struck by the parallels. Let me first start by saying that I'm really honoured and humbled to be here uh, with Nick, who really has done a remarkable thing, and we should all be grateful, and to The Guardian, that... The parallels are really striking. When I was listening to Alan give that recitation, and I remember being so struck at the idea of criminals working for the White House, for the President of the United States, when we were uh, doing the Watergate story. And I'm thinking, criminals working for a newspaper, being a substitute for reporters, gathering news through criminal acts. It's absolutely stunning. Uh, I wrote a piece for Newsweek and and the Daily Beast uh, comparing the two events, and I think both are shattering cultural moments of huge consequence that are going to be with us for generations. That really what Rupert Murdoch managed to do was break the very civic compact of this country, particularly through achieving a degree of control over the essential institutions of a free society, the press, the police, um, and the politicians. It's, It's extraordinary. And I have been one who has never accepted any of this gate stuff and parallels that are always made, usually by the Murdoch press, to, uh, uh, you know, to, to some sex scandal with a gate appended to it. Uh, but this is the one gate but that this, we didn't add but this, this, we, this, we call this, this is for real. And the parallels are, are remarkable because, first of all, the important thing is not the smoking gun and whether or not Rupert Murdoch knew that on X date uh, one of his employees hacked a telephone. The important thing, like any more than whether Richard Nixon knew on X date uh, that the burglars were going to go into the uh, political opposition's uh, place and wiretap. It's about a sensibility. It's about a sensibility that corrupted a free institution. And the consequences of that sensibility are so far-reaching Because what has happened in terms of the low end of of the Murdoch press 
is that it has driven the ever-descending lowest common denominator of journalism, not only at Murdoch's papers, but in this country particularly, at the other tabloids in our country uh, as well. It has resulted in a diminution of repertorial standards uh, at many, many newspapers which have emulated the Murdoch press. Uh, in terms of the most basic decision we make as journalists and reporters. What is news? And that, too, is a disturbing aspect of, of this story as follows. That we have not heard much about the consumers of the trash who, in this country especially, but also in America, positively kindle at the crap that is published in these newspapers. And you can't separate journalism any more than you can separate the presidency from, of the United States from the rest of the culture. Thank you. George Eustace, you come at this from a rather different perspective. Well, um, I'm, you know, having worked um, dealing with the media as a press secretary for four years, um, I came to the conclusion in the end, actually, and I'm a conservative who's generally opposed to regulation, that actually journalists shouldn't fear regulation. Because what I used to see day in, day out was a problem where the news agenda wasn't decided by journalists who had done genuine investigation. Quite often it was dictated to them by their news desks, you must cover this story because some other papers covered it. Or worse still, um, that the way they interpreted a speech that a party leader given would come right from the top, from the editor or even from the proprietor, saying, uh, no, David Cameron didn't come to my summer party, so um, do, do over his um, speech. And, and we almost, on a weekly basis, what you'd get, and this isn't Murdoch papers, I think we need to broaden it to all papers, was an issue where if you gave an exclusive story to the Daily Mail, um, the Sun would be up in arms and would misreport it and basically, frankly, distort uh, the true content of the speech. And uh, the, the broadsheets are not immune to this either. It does, it does affect a lot of other papers. And I think where Carl's absolutely right is in saying that basically that the public interest defence that, that journalists fall back on has, and, and the media fall back on has basically been used and abused uh, over the years. And, and public interest has become to... Th- to mean things that are interesting to the public rather than public interest in the way it, it, um, it should be. But your answer is to regulate. Yes, I actually think there's not much wrong with the PCC code. It says you shouldn't do all these things. You shouldn't commit crimes. You, you shouldn't um, uh, you know, do long-lens photos. You shouldn't invade people's privacy. It's all there. But what goes wrong is it's not really enforced. And what I've said is, um, if you look at the broadcasting code, which you know, Channel 4, for instance, would, would abide by, there are tough sanctions. If they breach that code, they get fined £250,000. Um, if they uh, report a story that they know and then willfully do a story and know to be wrong, they have to correct it prominently in their bulletin so people can see it. Not so you see away. no difference in the principle of publishing in a newspaper and broadcasting. No, there's a difference, and that's why the, the codes are slightly different. But I, what I'm saying is a difference in terms of the enforcement. You need proper sanctions, and it needs to be enforced independently, not by a group of editors who sit around a table, because that's where it's been failing. There, there are differences with papers. So, <clears throat> I think, for instance... I so, but we, we have a duty to be impartial. Exactly. Would you, no, I would wouldn't you put that on that. newspapers? No, definitely no. not. And Neil Kinnock said that, and that's ridiculous, because I do think um, there's a difference with papers, because... Um, the thing with broadcasters, they've got limited spectrum, it's a scarce resource, and that's why it's licensed, and that's why it's right that we have a strong duty of impartiality on our broadcasters. And I think we've got one of the best broadcasting systems in the country. I think when it comes to newspapers, that's slightly different, because you, you shouldn't inhibit papers from taking a strong opinion. But where I think a lot of papers have broken down is they've not abided by the PCC code in terms of separating comment 
from news. And I would say, uh, not just because it's a Guardian conference, but the Guardian do it quite well. You have your news reporting, and then you have your Polly Toynbee on your comment pages uh, uh, giving a very strong opinion on something. But I think some papers have mixed that up, and they've allowed their opinions to, uh, to too much colour the way they've reported stories. And that's been a bad thing. And I think if we can discourage that and just tilt that back, we would have a better quality of journalism. Sylvie Kaufman, um, how does this look from, from Paris? I mean, is it, is it unimaginable? Yes, it is unthinkable in France. Um, but for various reasons. First, we have a very different media landscape and very different cultural landscape, uh, cultural attitude in France towards the media. Uh, we don't have a tabloid press, for instance. We don't have tabloids. We have maybe one which would qualify, François. It's been bought by a Russian. Uh, and it's, uh, getting, it's going bankrupt, so um, nobody's reading it. So that tells you something already. I think there's no appetite uh, among the French uh, consumers, as you said, because that's a very important point, I agree, uh, for, for this kind of, of uh, press coverage. Is that the big difference, culturally? I think, uh, yes, yes, that's a, that's a difference. Then you, you will ask, why isn't there uh, appetite? I, one of, I think the main reason is that people value their privacy in France, for better and, and, and for worse. I mean, I personally <laughs> would like the French readers to, to be a little bit more uh, hungry on this, and we've seen with the Dominique Strauss-Kahn story that uh, the press, uh, if the press had been more aggressive, maybe all this wouldn't have happened. Why wasn't the press more aggressive? I think because people don't feel, you know, they don't, just don't want... Their, their media to be too pushy, to go into a politicians' private lives, to go into uh, their private dealings, and so on. So that's that's you know, we we are together in this in this um, story. The, the consumers, the readers, the viewers, and the journalists. So uh, that's one 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 story. Thank you, Alan. Is there a grave danger that at the end of this road that you've embarked on? you will end up with a system that is far more restrictive, dangerous for the freedom of the press. Well, there's a danger, yeah. Um, it, I, I don't know how you quantify it. Um, and um, we, we can't yet see the shape of the Leveson inquiry and how he's going to do it. Um, there's, a, there's a slight um, awkwardness about the inquiry, which is, is going to reach its conclusions before it, it can establish the evidence. But that's due to the possibility of criminal trials. So, you know, in the end, he's going to be deciding between some form of statutory regulation, which I don't think the government has shown any signs of wanting, or some form of independent stroke self-regulation. And I think the, the questions there are, one is the one identified by George, so what kind of sanctions can you have? But I think the other, the other big question is the, the investigatory powers. So, I mean, what the, the PCC's mistake was to call itself a regulator. It's, it's not a regulator. Regulators can, can, they can go in and investigate and they have real powers, they have real teeth. Then the PCC, which has done lots of valuable work as a mediator and in all kinds of other ways, uh, by pretending that it could do this act of regulation and then completely failing because it couldn't investigate or ask any questions of anybody, uh, it, it then set itself up for this terrible fall so I, I think we're, you know, the, the, the Leveson inquiry, I, I guess, will end up 
in this sort of territory of independent stroke self-regulation, looking at the powers to investigate and the powers of sanction. But they're going to come into a couple of stumbling blocks. One is the sort of Richard Desmond question. What, what do you do about people who don't want to be part of it, who are in the press? Uh, and so th- how do you make this enforceable if it's not statutory? Uh, and there may be forms of, of, um, of co-regulation or, or, or having Ofcom as a kind of auditor. Um, but that's going to be one question. And the next question is, what do you do about Guido Fawkes and the Huffington Post, who are certainly not going to play any part in this? And I think there may be clever answers, and I think Carl's sort of hinted at one, in which you look at the defamation regime at the same time as the regulation regime, and you offer carrots to the press and say, if, if you are in this sort of kite-marked bit of the media here, and by the way, I think we should look at readers' editors as well, uh, and th- th- then we will give you advantages in terms of defamation. If you want to hear the full 90 minutes of that debate, head back to iTunes or mediaguardian.co.uk. But on with the podcast. Carl Bernstein was obviously the main draw at the event, and we'll get to him shortly. But first, let's hear briefly from Alan Rushbridger and George Eustace. As you can imagine, there was plenty of talk throughout the evening about regulation of the press. Many fear Lord Leveson's far-reaching inquiry into the media will bring about huge constraints across Fleet Street. But the Tory MP and The Guardian's editor-in-chief were more measured in their concerns. We don't want the, the, you know, what, you know, what the police were trying to do with the Official Secrets Act against uh, Amelia Hill. That was bad. Uh, I think having a sort of register of every meeting between any journalist, any politician, that's crazy. So let's not go overboard, but um, there probably are things that the press could do about saying we agree to be bound by certain professional and ethical standards, which I think would be good for the press. I actually think um, journalists in particular have nothing to fear because if you can raise the credibility of the profession, um, you actually strengthen it, people trust it more, and actually it could come out of this uh, much stronger. So, um, no, we, don't, we shouldn't have anything to fear. And you raised a particular point probably several times, in fact, about editors who tell their journalists to write a particular story and then ring you up and apologise and say, oh, I'm so sorry, my editor asked me to write this. Is that a common phenomenon in it, your experience? I'm afraid it is common, yes. Um, there would be instances where, uh, for instance, if you brief the story to a rival paper a different paper would write the story up the following day in a very unsympathetic light and sometimes I would have journalists phone me and apologise for the fact that they've been told to write a particular story at all or write it in a particular way and I think that's, to, to my mind we need to, to strengthen journalism and put journalism, journalists, individual journalists in the driver's seat rather than having uh, you know, editors and news desks dictating down what, the, what, the, um, what should be on the agenda and how stories should be written. Okay time now to hear from the man who made his name with the Watergate expose. When he came off stage, I wanted to explore a few of the issues he'd just raised in greater detail. Maybe it was the jet lag, maybe it was his low blood sugar, but either way, Bernstein wasn't playing ball. Okay, I have very strong feelings about this. You're not going to like what I'm going to say. I, I really, I, I think, that I, I, have, I do this all the time. When people have been at an event that I've spoken at and then they come up afterwards 
when they could have had the sound from the event. Now we've got that too. Okay, so what can I possibly add this is- to that? It's it's ridiculous. It's it's not journalistic. Well- <laughs> it's bad journalism, well, and I object. We better stop recording. Okay, well, no, I, right. really, I think it's a good point I'm making. I think it. I think that it, it's a kind of idiot journalism. Well, it's a. <laughs> I do. I well, think really. Value added for the no, it's not. It's not. I'm going to be really querulous. It's not. It's not thoughtful. And we've had a really good discussion here. Now you're going to come to me and say, now sum this up. No, I'm not going to do it. So well, if you have a good question, I'll answer it. But, but yeah. I really feel, I do this all over the country in America. When they come up to me and they've been at the thing uh, for their own air, the idea that it has to be different than everybody else, that's not journalism. Go ahead. Carl, I'm tempted to ask you to sum up what we've just heard in the debate, but I'm worried you're going to walk out, so I'm not going to do it. I am. I'm not going to do it. It's ridiculous. Well, you say there should be less regulation, but how how, how far do you take that? You know what? I I really... I think you guys are terrific. I think what you're doing is wrong. I really do. I think you need to think it through and talk to your editor about it. I don't know. It wouldn't happen to Steve Hewlett. Anyway, eventually I did make some headway, asking him about the economics of newspapers and specifically who will be funding investigative journalism in the future. I don't know. I think that there are many forms and uh, uh, platforms for investigative journalism. Some are by foundations. Uh, Some are by trusts, such as The Guardian. Uh, The New York Times continues to do great investigative journalism. There are great journalistic institutions that, that do terrific uh, investigative journalism. The Washington Post still does some. ProPublica in a, in a new format. The real question to me is the one that I raised in there. How are the best standards of the old journalism going to be preserved in the new journalism? And I don't know the answer to that except for us to all continue doing what we do and do it well. So there's an example to be followed. Pulitzer Prize winning Carl Bernstein there. The toughest interview I've done since I doorstepped Brian Harvey for the Sunday People back in 2000. But that's another story. Fortunately, Sylvie Kaufman was much more forthcoming. We started by talking about the Betancourt affair, which, much like The Guardian's pursuit of phone hacking, is a core celeb for her own paper, Le Mans. Liliane Betancourt is the heiress of L'Oréal, which is a huge um, uh, cosmetic company, and she's uh, the richest uh, woman in France. There's a family feud about the money, the inheritance, and so on. She's an old lady. And so her daughter took her to court. And in the, in the process of, the, of this court case, through secret recordings made at her home by a butler, at the, at the old lady's home, at Lillian Betancourt's home, we came to learn about... Uh, links between politicians and the Betancourt family and links which, of course, had financial elements in them. So um, there was a big suspicion of uh, illegal political financing through this story, which at the beginning was a family feud and private, you know, private uh, story. Um, And so what happened, we had reporters, of course, on that, case investigating those links and um, we found out the police and even the intelligence services had requested the phone bills and the phone records of two of our reporters who were working on this story uh, because they wanted to identify their sources 
and it's illegal in France. There's a law which says that you can't try to find, to uncover journalistic sources. So we, uh, Le Monde, we sued the government for violating this law. Because these orders came from the, the French equivalent of um, MI5, is that right? Yes, yes. And uh, obviously, and the these intelligence services, they didn't decide on their own to look for those phone uh, records. You know, they got uh, uh, the order from higher up. So this is what we want to find out, and this is why we, we sued the government in order to find exactly what happened. And... Um, And the investigation is going on, and we are getting, I think it's being quite properly conducted. And we have already a few people, including a state prosecutor, who uh, is uh, wanted for questioning by the judge. So it's, uh, it's an interesting case. And Le Monde has accused, effectively accused uh, Nicolas Sarkozy of, of, of spying on your reporters. It's a sign that it's not just the media in the UK that's under pressure. This is an extraordinary story to come out of France. It is, it is a big story, and of course we're in the middle, of, we're in the beginning of a presidential campaign, so it's uh, quite hot, and there are other, other scandals uh, emerging, so it's, uh, it's a busy time both for the justice system and for, the, and for, for journalists, yes. And you'll have heard, of course, the issues of phone hacking in the UK and of uh, journalists using private investigators to, to get their stories. Is that the sort of thing that you'd ever have in the French media? No, uh, we... We have uh, we don't have this culture in France of tabloid uh, media. We don't have actually tabloid newspapers, and um, we don't have Rupert Murdoch media in France either. He was never very interested in in French media. So it's it's a completely different landscape in France. And I must say, uh, what I've read uh, lately about what happened here, you know, this this. Uh, Um, system of paying the police, of uh, uh, hacking thousands of people's phones, of uh, proximity between politicians and, and, and the media. Uh, to that point, of course, we have proximity between politicians and the media. I'm not saying uh, everything's perfect, not at all in France. But to, to that level of paying the police hiring private investigators no i don't think uh, this is something which is done in france okay we'll leave that one there there's plenty more on phone hacking on mediaguardian.co.uk and that's where you'll also find the full audio of the debate featuring carl bernstein alan rusperger and the rest we're back in the studio next week but in the meantime leave your feedback on anything you've heard on our blog media talk is produced by ben green and i'm john plunkett bogus journalist thanks for listening especially you carl For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.